Are you keeping your vision off, Father Dave? Are you? Oh. Have you not done your hair or something today? Yeah, sorry. How's that? Better? Oh, you look good. How are we going to do this episode about books? Okay, so don't hope worry. everyone's brought two books. You don't actually don't need the books. You just need to talk about them. One book. I got, I got six. Right. Well, so, I, but I, I, I really didn't get much time to think about it. We, we happen to share a little bit of a library here. Okay. What's that? Spanish dictionary. <laughs> Classy. <laughs> Uh, I think there's one here on Latin verb conjugations. <laughs> and if someone else mentions your book, you've got to come up with another one on the fly. Mine's my my book's called Walk for One. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast that starts with a clap of thunder and then peters off and fizzles, really, because we're recording on a Friday afternoon in Lent. Is there, Yay! is there any other time when we're going to be well, stretched to keep our energy up? But it is, it's a Friday in Lent, but it's also St. Joseph's feast day. So, you know, Friday in Lent, solemnity, you know. Solemnity wins. Solemnity wins. That's what I wanted to hear from clergy. <laughs> <laughs> solemnity trumps everything. <laughs> there you go. Let's have a, uh, let's have a roast beef for dinner. <laughs> I see a new a new card game in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can I like see your I see your Friday in Lent, and I raise you a solemnity. solemnity. Oh, <laughs> I can't believe you had that. Actually, solemnity doesn't beat everything. The triduum beats everything. Yeah, there, there there is actually a thing if you and, if you look into. The, oh, but you do need all three cards. <laughs> true, you do. Like you know how most card games will have a list of what beats what. Yeah. There is actually that in the liturgy, um, like in the front of, in the front of the divine office. It's actually got a table which says, you know, this beats this unless it happens to be this day, in which case that beats that. And so you can you could actually turn this into a card game. So the tritium is the equivalent of a royal flush. Pretty much, yeah. Right, beats everything. Shoot the moon. So the feast of the Annunciation, which is a solemnity normally would beat everything unless it falls during Holy Week, in which case it gets bumped off until the end of the Easter octave. Oh, right. Because Holy Week and the Easter octave pretty much trump everything. So when is the Assumptions coming up, isn't it? Another week or something? Oh, the Annunciation. The Annunciation? Sorry, the Annunciation? Uh, 25th. Yeah, next Thursday. Because I knew there were these Which for the listeners would have been three months ago. (laughs) Thanks, Sam. St. Patrick's Day, (laughs) St. Joseph's Day and the Annunciation. Normally, all in quick succession in Lent. Awesome. Yeah, happy feast of St. Patrick as well, particularly for you, Father Dave, being a fellow Scot. Yes. I was trying to explain to my parish the other day that Patrick is the patron saint of Ireland, but he's not from Ireland. And he was born in Scotland, but he's not Scottish. So St. Teresa of Calcutta in India, but Algerian. (laughs) Uh, Albanian. 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 Sorry, the other, that's right. The other, the other A-L. <laughs> yeah. yeah. St. Yes. Uh, Cyril and Methodius, uh, patron to the Slavs, but I believe were Greek. Yes, but it was the time when the Greeks called themselves Romans. Wow. <laughs> Let's clear that up. <laughs> now, today we are going to be talking about uh, books. It's, it's almost uh, it's a little bit of recommended reading from us, but these are the books that have shaped us that have impacted on us. But I actually want to begin somewhere else because 
Often it is said that in the lead up to conversion that the only book many people will read is you, your life. So I actually want to begin there. Who are the people who you've seen something in them that has actually genuinely impacted the way that you live your life? And I want to, I'll get the ball rolling here because I have uh, thrown in the deep end a little bit because you prepared books and I'm going to name people here. One of the big impacts on me was on youth mission team years ago. So I'd already, I was already on that uh, path, on that, that faith path, but certainly had a massive impact on me. At the end of our year, we had our presentation night and one of our team girls walked in, her name was Belle and Belle looked amazing to the point where the entire youth mission team turned and went, oh my goodness, Belle, you look phenomenal. Genuine, she almost looked like a new person. And Belle at that point, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this on the podcast, but she admitted just to us that at the start of the year, she'd made a decision that to offer something up for the salvation of the souls we'd be meeting that year, she would give up makeup for the whole year. And it dawned on us that for the first time we were seeing her with makeup on. And that was what was so different in that moment. But she had uh, offered that up for the entire year. And I later found out one of our other team members gave up his bed for the whole year and slept on the floor. I thought you were going to say he he took on the makeup for the... No. <laughs> <laughs> he actually ended up That's marrying silly. her. So, <laughs> ah, Very nice. It's, mm. it's at least in his bathroom now. What is bad? No, her makeup. Her makeup. <laughs> what have been the, the the moments that you've seen in others where you've been genuinely blown away by the level at which they have lived their faith? The first person that comes to my mind was uh, the guy who was leading the youth group that I got involved in when I was thirteen years old. So basically, he had been employed as a youth minister for our parish, which I think is possibly the only time there's ever been an employed youth minister in that particular parish, which happens to be your parish, Marty. Certainly not the case now. (laughs) But anyway, this guy just had an amazing vision for living his faith, but also just an amazing vision for loving the people that he was ministering to. As a 13-year-old, I think, who was in that horrendous environment, which we call high school, uh, where (laughs) nobody cares for anybody and everything is just purely survival. But they pretend I I, they care. Do they? Oh, yeah. Don't they? They, they write things about caring. They yeah. don't, just don't actually do it. <laughs> but I think I, I, I saw a vision of what Christianity was in the way this guy operated. And he probably had one of the most significant influences on my faith journey. So I, I, I've, I've never really had a chance to see him for, since I left that youth group or, or since he moved on because he moved to a different part in Australia. But if I ever do meet him, I'm going to be very grateful and thanking him because I'm probably in my vocation today because of that. Mm. Mm. Stunning. Mm. I think that person in my life was actually Marty. And I mean that genuinely, but let's not talk about that because that'd just get awkward. Wouldn't it? Hi, Marty. Hi, Sam. Well, I was going to say <laughs> you, you two are quite an influence. We're going to do that. Do that. Um, no, I've, I've said it before. I'll say it again. My grandmother... I think Mm-mm. is the biggest influence on me because she just loved me amazing. She even let me beat her at poker when I taught her how to play and she let me cheat and and, and win because she was that good to me. <laughs> this is how you determine someone's love for you. Well, 
pretty good indicator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done that for my children. <laughs> well, Marty, do you want to get the, the, uh, the, the first book on the table for us? What would you bring I, along? You've actually brought the books with you, have you? I just brought a um, list. Lo- yeah, sure. I've brought them with me. I'm not going to show them to you, but yeah, I've, I've, I've got them here. Uh-huh. It, it is important to go first, isn't it? Because if someone else presents your book before you do, you've got to scramble and find another one before it comes around to your turn. What do you got? So let's start with the... Uh, so the idea was we'd have a maybe a more um, entry-level book and a more advanced book each kind of thing. Oh, that's right. But, I forgot but that you, you two, that. But you two didn't read the text message, so who knows how this is going to end. So, so Father Dave... So the- to, hang on, Marty. Father Dave brought zero. I brought six. So no, and, neither of us did. And I brought three of two. <laughs> so my my candidates for entry level books were C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the whole lot. I know that's seven books, but but I'm not going to talk about them. They are awesome, um, especially the Horse and His Boy. That's my favourite one. But that's that's not the ones I want to talk about. They they, they what, are essential reading though. I, I I was told by a young guy in Canberra that my ordination wasn't valid until I'd read the whole series of <laughs> Narnia. So I hope you've rectified that. Uh, yes, and I, and I told him, you know, that's, you know. Canon 1574. <laughs> well, on just really good, really good imagery of, it's an analogy. What's a big like analogy allegory? called? Allegory. It's an allegory of Christianity from creation all the way up to the final judgment as you roll through these books. Yeah, read it, do it, do it. But that's not the one I want to talk about. My entry-level book is... St. Louis de Montfort's Secret of Ah, Elegy. No. Yes. That was was mine. Which which after I wrote, after I read it, I gave it to Sam to read. Yeah. I'll back you up. Go. All right. So, so St. Louis de Montfort, I don't know, two or 300 years ago, um, French missionary priest. I think he was a like third order Dominican. That makes sense. Father Dave, like, I think he was a, Mm. diocesan priest but he had a third order sort of association with the dominicans and wrote a number of books the secret secret of mary true devotion to mary and the secret of the rosary these his writings were never published during his lifetime but he did a lot of mission work traveling around parish to parish and i think after the french revolution his writings were found in a chest buried in a field these manuscripts and then they became published then and yeah and really good so he's got this book. It's only a little book. It's like it is. It's a. It's actually a very simple read. It's not very long, and it is. Uh, it does have the language of someone from quite a few centuries ago. Yeah, and and tells you all about the um, the structure and the use and the power of the rosary, especially the first half. To be honest, I thought the first half was awesome, awesome, and I thought the second half was pretty good, but. Um, Good thing they. Good thing it wasn't the other way around, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a little bit that I want to go. That little bit at the towards the end, the, the bit that I didn't that I didn't think necessarily was fantastic was that there was uh, a fair bit about indulgences and time out of oh, yeah. purgatory. Father Dave, can mm. I ask you on the spot a little bit? This you know, a thousand days off purgatory side of it. Where did this? come from it i took that i just took that when i read that in the book i took it as a bit of a great a bit of grain of salt that this was something that was very prominent in the church at the time the rest of the book is amazing and that was the bit that i thought ah i i feel a bit uncomfortable with that 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm just racking my brain. I actually read Until a history on this. Until you're in purgatory going 1,000 days to go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read a history on this a few years ago, but I just can't remember the, the guts of what that article was talking about. But I think it's, the, it's no, a symbolic go. thing more than an actual thing. I think that's, the, that's, right. that's what it was getting at because we don't believe that purgatory is actually within the realm of time. Mm. You know, so as we would say that heaven is outside of time. It's not as though it's like a prison sentence where you're putting chalk marks on the wall to work out how many days you've been there. I think it's kind of really what it's trying to get at is almost putting like a measurement on certain acts to show it's, how much they it's have the potential to convert us and bring us back. How efficacious it is. Yeah, efficaciousness is. They're all they're relative measurements. So rather than thinking of a thousand days as one thousand days, whatever the thousand day indulgence Units. when compared to the hundred day indulgence, you know, is sort of the order of ten times bigger. I think that's yeah. really what those measurements get to. Yeah. And and the church today doesn't use that language at all. It it only talks about a plenary indulgence or a partial indulgence. Mm. So really, it's it's about turning back to God. That that's really what an indulgence gets at. It's like I'm aware that I'm away from God. I'm living in a life of sin. You know, we talk about that idea of you know we take one step towards God and He runs a hundred steps towards us. Mm. Like even just doing a sign of the cross. You know, they used to talk about that having you know like a hundred days indulgence or something. But the yeah. idea is I'm 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 turning back to God, and that has value. So for, for anyone who does read The Secret of the Rosie by St. Lord de Montfort, please keep that in mind when you read that particular chapter. The, the book itself is gold. Marty, keep going. Well, but basically to paraphrase, he says you should say the rosary. Like, just do it, do it, do it. And then gives you like 50 reasons why as it rolls through. So I don't, you know, I don't want to be a spoiler. You know what I, I really I, I'm, am a little bit? What I loved about the book was that he stripped away any notion of you must do it this particular way. This is mm. how it's done properly mm. and you shouldn't. He actually encourages the reader to make it their own prayer and do whatever you can so that you are actually meditating on the life of Jesus yeah. alongside Our Lady. You know, he really goes down that line rather than don't worry about the, the this is the basic structure, but make it, make it your own. Yeah. And tell story, you know, like, you know, miracle stories from mm. that, that he's obviously aware of. Yeah, it's really good, mm. really good. Anyway, so and that's if first you one need of a yours, copy Sam. of that, yeah. Marty's uh, happy to give you a lend of his copy. <laughs> it's it's cheap. It's like six bucks on book depository. It's um because it's only little, so there's no excuse for well, anyone not to buy it. Okay, well, if if you're going with that as your first, then I'm going to steal Father Dave's and say uh, G.K. Chesterton's Saint Francis of Assisi. Oh, really? uh, this is one that I read not too long ago, only a couple of years ago. Uh, look, I already love so very it. much, very much beginning level. Look, it's G.K. Chesterton. It was a joke. <laughs> so, so no, just, just uh, it, it's as it's as beginner level as G.K. Chesterton gets. <laughs> Can I just say, I, I I claim that this is the book that converted me. Because I came across this one time, uh, it was actually at your parish, Marty. Yeah. When I when, when I had back when it was your parish, 
when, when I had graduated to become the leader of that same youth group that I joined when I was 13. Yeah. And uh, I was waiting for a friend one afternoon and he didn't turn up. And in the bookshelf, there was this copy of G.K. Chesterton's France of Assisi. And I thought, oh, Francis was my confirmation site. I should have a look at this. And I started reading it. And I reckon I understood less, less than half of it. But it blew my mind. But the half that you did understand. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it made me so curious and so envious of Francis that I started just reading more and more. And, uh, yeah, the rest is history. So for those who haven't read G.K. Chesterton, he does have a habit of stringing together. So Francis had a habit as well at the end. He did. G.K. Chesterton, though, strings together sentences that should be broken up such that it makes an entire paragraph. And by the time you finish the sentence, you're not, sometimes you don't remember where it began. Actually, the phrase that sticks out in my mind from Chesterton is, and I don't mean, which he throws into the middle of a sentence. He'll, he'll establish something and then he'll say, and I don't mean the type that would gallivant around singing and dancing merrily as they go. But it's a wonderful book. The imagery that stands out that has stuck with me from that particular biography is Chesterton trying to paint the picture of how Francis saw the world. Mm. And he, mm. he talks about big castles and these massive buildings that we build out of stone and how impressive they look. But Francis saw the world. St. Francis saw the world as though it was turned upside down. And at that point, an enormous great big castle hanging upside down suddenly looks very precarious. Mm. It's the first thing that's likely to topple, to just disconnect and fall, and that Francis, St. Francis saw the world upside down what was what we would see as great and lofty and secure he saw as vulnerable and weak the key thing to understand about that book is that it's not a traditional life of francis it's more like an analysis of his life don't be deceived by the title it's not chronological biography it presumes that you already know the story and then mm. he gives his take on certain events in Francis's life to show their significance. So if mm. you don't know anything about Francis, you'll understand less than half of it, like me. <laughs> less than half. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you, well, you need to find another book called, I don't know, The Life of St. Francis and read by someone else and read that first in order well, to... <laughs> or even, even just, just look up a quick you know, bio on the internet and then go and read G.K. Chesterton. Righto. Yeah, uh, genuinely at the other end of the the spectrum, but still very much at the beginner level. Uh, probably one of the first books, and actually it was genuinely the first book that I ever put down and thought that was brilliant, was by and I think he's a Pentecostal pastor, Bill Hybels, and the book was called Courageous Leadership. And what he did in that book was establish Christian principles for leadership, and it was the first time I'd seen a genuine tie-over in that way. So many years ago, I can't remember pretty much anything that he wrote in that book. I just remember it had a massive impact on me. Mm -hmm. A very good read for anyone who, and I'd, I would still recommend it for anyone who is in a position of leadership to look at that. There's another one called 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John C. Maxwell. He is Christian. A lot of his examples aren't, but it certainly has that 
that that slant on it. Sorry, are these are these are these two other books that you're not talking about? No, exactly. Yes, <laughs> like Narnia. The um, but they're not like Narnia, are they? No. <laughs> can, can I just throw in a slight addendum to the Bill Hybels one? I would strongly recommend anyone in Christian leadership to read that book, but then go and read online about Bill Hybels. Unfortunately, as with many Christian leaders, he recently got accused of a whole bunch of stuff, which was basically about, you know, just, just serious character flaws. Now, that, that, that of its own is kind of tragic, but, but I think what is fascinating is that so much of his leadership material, he talks about the most essential, most essential thing in leadership is character. And I've, mm. I've watched numerous videos online where he talks about how leaders have got to work on their character. You know, that's the key area where you're going to get taken out and hit in ministry. The fact that he then got hit in that same area, I think, is a great lesson in itself. You know, so as, as much mm. as the principles are important, I think the, the tragic sequel to that is even more important because it makes you realize that this is a serious problem that everyone's got to work on. You think are you are you saying that he needed to listen to his own talks? Yes, it's funny. I could see on your face as soon as I said his name, your face changed, and I wondered why. That's why I, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I when I was training our novices, I used to use a video of his where he talks about the importance of character, uh, and then it, like it was only about two years ago when this came out, and when I look back at the video, I'm like, I think we should keep showing this video. You know, but uh, explain the story because mm-hmm. it actually makes his words even more important when you put it in that context. Mm. Mm. So, Father Dave, do you have a beginner's book? Well, do you, do you have my book? Obviously, if this is the way well, we're going, it, 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 it's, it's a little hey, bit. Like mine's <laughs> my book is not a beginner's book, Marty. Mine's definitely in the intermediate class. No, but you took Father Dave's first choice, and I took your. You know, so. We'll, we'll see once I reveal my hand and see what we've got. Yeah, that's right. So having said about the significance of France of Assisi in my conversion, one of the next key books I came across, and I forget where I came across it. Someone must have given it to me. It's a book called Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. Have you guys ever read that? It doesn't sound like a beginner book. No, I haven't read that. And I think, uh, that, yeah, well, it's, think that means you win. It's more like a beginner yep. punch in the face book. This is a Father Dave Callahan beginner book. <laughs> if you're at that stage where you really want to understand, like when I took over from my youth leader. Sorry, <laughs> back to you. Who is the author? Richard Wormbrand. He was a Romanian evangelical pastor who was uh, imprisoned by the communists for 14 years. Uh, Three years of that was spent in solitary confinement in a cell 10 metres underground with no light, uh, being tortured every day. And basically he wrote this book when when, when he was eventually released. He basically wrote his experiences of those who'd been in prison with him and the ways that Christians in communist, the Soviet Union, were suffering for the faith. Now, I think for me, having gone from reading France of Assisi and understanding that or being inspired by that radical discipleship, this was, like I say, like, like a bit of a punch in the Facebook. It was um, 
Mm. Suddenly realizing, you know what, my comfortable Christianity is a whole different religion to what these guys are living. Mm. And um, yeah, it was quite a significant moment for me to actually relook at my faith and want to, you know, to decide to step away from that very lukewarm, mediocre imitation of Christianity. Did you, did you ever read the book The Heavenly Man? Into Martin. Yes. Yeah. That that had a similar impact on me, just the level of faith and the, the actual interaction with God through prayer. Yeah. Yeah. That was an amazing book. Brother Yun, was it? The Heavenly Something Man. Like that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So what, what was that book again that you named? Tortured for Christ. Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. Same thing. I think you can get it for free online if you look it up. Wow. Yeah. Oh, check that out. Great. Yeah. He, he actually, he wrote a couple of books. There was another book I came across of his called Sermons in Solitary Confinement, uh, where in those three years that he was in solitary confinement, he kept himself sane by preaching a sermon to himself each day and then memorized them and eventually wrote them down. And I came across a copy years ago. I, I think they're, it's actually really quite hard to get hold of, but some of the most full-on things I've ever read in terms of preaching the gospel because it's, Mm. the context in which it was preached yeah it was really quite serious mm. yeah i'm just just seemed to have punched me in the face as well um just the context of that is really striking me that yes from our well i'm going to say our certainly from my middle class western world you know university education upbringing what other people go through to suffer like Jesus and for Jesus, is much, much, much bigger than the than the tiny little sacrifices that I that I offer the Lord. Mm. I think in those situations, when someone's in that that situation, there's far less of a tendency to try and cushion or fluff up the gospel. It becomes very raw. Like to the, the point. prosperity gospel. Yeah, and, and the way in which the prosperity gospel can infiltrate in very subtle ways. Which is not really the gospel. <laughs> no. Well, actually, speaking of it, and, and sorry, Marty, I do have another entry-level one that I think is absolutely brilliant. Uh, it. It's, it's the it. opposite. It's the, I've just read Tortured for Christ. Is that what it's called, Father Day? Yeah, yeah that's right. So th this is the, I've just read Tortured for Christ and... I need a nightcap before going to sleep. What I would highly recommend is a book by Jacques Philippe, a Frenchman, and, and the book is The Way of Trust and Love. It's I thought you were going to say Revelation. Just read Revelation for a nightcap before you to sleep. <laughs> it's about St. Therese of Lisieux. So Jacques Philippe unpacks St. Therese of Lisieux. Uh, it's called The Way of Trust and Love, and it is a stunningly beautiful and simple encounter with the love of God, with the love of Christ and the way in which we live and the simplicity with which we have the opportunity to encounter God. That sounds really appropriate that a book about St. Therese of Lisieux would be beautiful and simple. That's yes. All. Have you ever heard a talk by Jacques Philippe? No. He talks in a very beautiful and simple way. <laughs> with a French accent? He's very, he does. Very, very strong French accent. Actually, funny thing is when I heard him talk, he... Uh, had a translator and he said something in French and the translator said it in English. And then he turned to the translator 
and said corrected him yeah and <laughs> said something else in french and the translator said oh sorry what he actually said was so obviously his uh, english was better than he was letting on better than the translator all right okay marty give us your i know what this one is i could could have put a hundred dollars on it at the start yeah all right um, we're going the to princess Dante. bride inconceivable inconceivable Inconceivable! You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. No, no, joking. I did read that, and it's awesome. It's better. The book's better than the movie, just like The Cat in the Hat. But anyway, again, we're not talking about that. I'm going to bring up Dante's Divine Comedy. Now, this is a big book. This is a book written in, I don't know, 1500s or something. It's it's an epic poem, like the epic poems of old, like Homer's odyssey and iliad and that kind of thing and and it's written in that style it's written before movies were invented one of the introductions to one of the one of them was saying if dante was alive these days he'd probably be making lord of the rings style movies because you know because that's sort of the medium that that we consume these days but that's sort of the market segment that this book came in it was written interestingly was written in the florentine dialect and anyone knows italy italy's cut up into 20 regions which all have their own language called dialects and basically this book which was written in the Florentine dialect not Latin and Latin was still the like the official language of the time was probably the thing that pushed pushed Florentine dialect into turning into Italian later on so what the Italian language Mm -hmm. is the Florentine dialect and it's largely due to Dante writing this book or these this poem these three poems epic poem travels through (laughs) it's a bit I don't know how to say it. Dante writes about himself in this poem. <laughs> he is the uh, the hero in it, or maybe the anti-hero or both. Um, but he travels through three books. He travels through through hell and then through purgatory and then through heaven with, with a guide, Virgil, who was a Roman poet of, I don't know, a thousand years earlier or something. He, he meets him there and Virgil takes him as his guide through. Now, the first time I read it, um, I read it in an older translation. It was quite hard to read. The second time I read it, I read it in the Hollander translation, which is much more recent. You can find it on something called the Princeton Project online if you want to read it online. But the more modern translation is better because it's just easier to read because it, you know, the language can be difficult, which actually means it's easier to read in translation than in the original. And I, this only occurred to me when I was in Italy a couple of years ago talking to my cousins who all study this at high school. A bit like the way we study Shakespeare at high school. And you try and read Shakespeare and you go, I don't really know what he's saying because these words don't make sense. And we wouldn't translate Shakespeare into modern English. That just hey, seems you know, silly. I heard, I heard recently that when Romeo, no, when uh, Juliet says, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? She's actually not asking, where are you? Wherefore art actually translate as why are you? In our language now, she's saying, why are you of that family? Ah. I love you, Romeo, Romeo. Why are you one of them? That's what she's saying, not saying, where are you? Where are you? I can't see you. I'm here. There you go. Yeah, so exactly that sort of stuff. You don't translate Shakespeare into modern English to make it easier to read. 
that we do translate Dante and Russian literature into modern English to make it easier to read. You should take advantage of that. Russian literature is still hard to understand in English. <laughs> I, I, have, I have actually just started War and Peace. I'm one chapter in. That's, that's not, not figuratively. That's, oh, you've actually, actually the book. Uh-huh. I've started writing it, yes, I'm one chapter in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just started reading. A friend gave me the two volumes. So, and the reason why I really like Dante's Divine Comedy is because it's been described as Thomas Aquinas in verse. So you could read the theology of Thomas Aquinas, trawl through it and try and understand it because it, you know, is a textbook kind of thing. Or my preferred way is to read Dante's poem and take soak in the beauty of the poem, but the imagery gives you so much rich and deep theology of the teachings of the church. Was anyone know here, was uh, St. Thomas Aquinas influenced by Dante's Inferno? Well, it's not just the Inferno, it's the whole Divine Comedy. Inferno sorry, is just the first sorry, book of hell. Sorry, just saying. Divine, Divine Comedy. Uh, it, was the, it was the other way around. So Aquinas, oh, Aquinas the, was first. Yeah. Aquinas sorry, was I, first. I actually, I genuinely thought that Dante was around pre-Thomas Aquinas. No, not at all. Okay. Glad I said that on air. <laughs> Um, so pretty big, pretty hard to read. You've got to, you've got to be invested to get there, to get to the end. But um, I just found it beautiful and educational all at once. That's a good combination. I, I still haven't read it. Yeah, I, you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Got to be honest, though. I think it's I'm scary. probably... It's big. They're big books. You look at it from the bookshelf. And they, they, they accuse you. They say, you, you can't <laughs> read this. I'm too big for you. <laughs> My, Marty gave me a copy of In the Inferno. Which I, I I read about two thirds of it. I'm still, I think, as I'm getting closer to the lower levels of hell, maybe I'm just less interested to go deeper. Yeah. <laughs> so in the book, yeah, yeah, <laughs> just yeah, just clarify that. My favorite of the three, my favorite's Purgatory. Maybe just because I can relate more to those souls <laughs> than mm. than hell or heaven, but yeah. I'll get there, Marty. Okay. I'm going to read Tortured for Christ first. Clearly. And then I'll get on to Dante. And that book that you sent me that's still sitting next to my bed about that, that fiction book. Which one was that? The, the guy who fights. Oh, <laughs> legend. 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 Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That's a good book I too. But... I haven't started that one. <laughs> I'd like to throw one out here that Father Dave gave to me. A number of years ago, and I do apologise, Father Dave. I then it would appear handed that book on to someone else, and I was thinking about it before we started recording today. And I will jump online after this and order a new copy for you. Uh, it's well worth while having in your library. Do you know I'll which book ju- I'm talking about? I'll probably just give it away to somebody else, so <laughs> you don't need to worry too much. <laughs> I'll, I'll put you. I'll put your name in the cover this time. Do you know which book it is? Was this War Against the Week? It was, yeah, by Edwin Black, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. Now, this is, I want to throw this one in. This is not necessarily the sort of book that you would read in order to grow in faith. This is more of a book that's going to perhaps help in chiseling our path in life, in, in knowing what's going on around us, and perhaps what we do with our faith. This was a dense book. This was a it's a, again, Marty, maybe a little bit like Dante's Divine Comedy. It's a big book that says, I dare you. <laughs> but you the, can't. the background of this is that Edwin Black won the Pulitzer Prize for a, 
an earlier book called IBM and the Holocaust. As a journalist, he had uncovered the link between IBM, the company, and the Holocaust, being that IBM had its foundations in producing machines to uh, of a rudimentary type, uh, first sort of, sort of computers, in order to actually uh, rush through the, the, the those in the concentration camps and to, to number them. In doing his research oh, for right. that, he discovered a heap of other material that didn't make the cut for IBM and the Holocaust, but in of itself became a whole new book, which is called War Against the Weak, which is... The, now, what's the word for it? The eugenics Eugenics, movement. thank you. Mm. Yeah. So it's all about the eugenics movement. This is the, the push to create a super race, uh, which you, you read the book and it, it does open your eyes to so much of what is going on around us right now that you kind of take for granted. But when you see where it's come from, you see the, these tentacles of we want to create superhumans and we want to, we want to rid the earth of inferior people. And you end up with something like Iceland where they now abort a hundred percent of children with Down syndrome and, and celebrate the fact that they have no one with Down syndrome being born because they're, they're aborting them. It's a challenging, challenging book, but I think it's, it's more of a, from a history perspective than a faith perspective, but I think it's very well worth the read. And certainly from that historical perspective, it challenged me as to how ignorant I was of what's happened in the last 100 years. So the Captain America movies were right? Yes. Okay, looks like you haven't seen those. <laughs> <laughs> I will get you a copy back, Father Dave. Okay, and I'll pass it on to somebody else. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, eugenics is horrible. Yes. And it's amazing when you see the direct path of the eugenics movement in the States, 40,000 people being forcibly sterilized so they couldn't have children. Mm. And then people in the United States petitioning the then uh, president saying, you need to give us more funding because the Germans are now beating us at our own game pre-World War II. And the direct correspondence with those in the States doing it and those in, in Germany mm. who then went on to actually facilitate the concentration camps. Mm. And it continues now. And we, you know, we talk about the concentration camps as this blot in human history. And you read this book and you think, it's not just a blot in human history, it's still on us. That stain is still here. Yeah. It's just not within, it's not behind barbed wire now. Mm. We were saying about Iceland and yeah, down, down syndrome children. They, the, I just got to say, the Down syndrome children that I've met all look pretty happy, to be honest. Yeah. Yep. You know? But, this, but this, this notion that of, well, that's not us and we are better than them. Mm. It's certainly not a, and it's not an easy read. One of the most challenging books I've ever read. All right. War Against the Weak. Who's the author? I'm writing these down. Edwin Black. All right. I did just keep talking then as though that was going to make the cut, even though Father Dave was talking in the background because we could just. You can just cut my line out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's going to make the cut. <laughs> uh, yeah. The sorry. That yet. was uh, the hospital chaplain. That was oh. Tony. Tony. I want you to go downtown. Yeah. So you've been called out for a uh, extreme unction. Uh, he was looking for someone. I was giving him um, his number. Hopefully you can get on to him. Right. So. If you need to go, that's okay because we're nearly finished. So, And even if we weren't, it's okay. Just on the in- extreme unction while we're here, there was a, uh, there was a comment on one of our uh, on the podcast, I can't remember which platform, they're kind of saying, bring on, bring on the extreme unction games. <laughs> that was following our reconciliation episode. Yeah. 
anyway. Father Dave, do you have any uh, hot tips for a book? Someone uh, who's listened to the podcast, what would you recommend? Well, I'd need to know what they're looking for if I'm going to recommend something personally to them. Um, In in terms of a second choice. Details, um, details. Can I throw out two options? You you can throw out as many as you want. It's the one you're (laughs) going to present is what's important. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the best books I read last year was, um, let me just find the name for it so I get it correct. Uh, It's called Tattoos on the Heart by Father Greg Boyle. I like the way that you say tattoos. Tattoos, not tattoos. Not tattoos. tattoos. I was just trying to just trying to get my diction and pronunciation good for the uh, audio. My, that's a lovely tattoo. Tattoo, <laughs> yes, it's for the upper class. Um, An aristocratic tattoo. <laughs> Tats on the heart. There we go. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, um, well he is a Jesuit priest who started Homeboy Industries in the U.S. working with gang members. Brilliant book. Well, probably one of the best books I've ever read on the love of God, but mm. in a very practical context of gang members living in a pretty difficult environment, not believing that they're actually worth anything and encountering God's love. Um, so I just put that out there. But um, mm. the actual one I'm going to recommend. Oh, so you're right. That's, that's the one you're not going <laughs> to That's right, the one I'm yeah. not going right. well, to yeah. Edit that one out, somewhere. Marty. <laughs> it's, too, it's too hard to, yeah. Uh, probably if I was going to say one of the best books I've ever read is called He Leadeth Me by Walter Chizek. Chizek being C-I-Z-E-K, I think. It's uh, Polish. Oh, Polish. So um, once again, he was a Jesuit. Um, he had, so at the end of the Second World War, he was part of this particular group that were hoping to re-evangelize Russia. And they'd had a special Russian seminary for guys who wanted to learn the language, learn the culture, hoping that once the war finished, the borders would open, they'd be able to go in. And so I I don't want to destroy the story, but it's one of the best stories I've ever read about learning how to trust God Mm. and particularly trusting God when there is absolutely no reason or evidence of God's existence to trust. He basically ended up spending... 34 years in communist prisons. When he eventually got released, he found out that his family had celebrated his funeral 30 years previously. And he was like, oh, I'm alive. But yeah, that book probably had one of the most significant influences on my faith journey. Mm. You're learning Russian? Am I learning Russian? No, I've I've, I've actually got a brother-in-law who is uh, (laughs) Russian Russian background. So I'll get him to speak really bad Russian to anyone who needs that reminds there was a talk I heard years ago, Father Dave, that was similar, but it was actually, it wasn't a book. The, the guy giving the talk, uh, he was a major in the Vietnam War, shot down on his final, in fact, the Top Gun, not the film. The actual Top Gun Academy was founded by him. Right? Oh. So pretty, he's big. He was big in the American Air Force. He was shot down on his final mission over Vietnam. Shot down. In a blaze of glory. Okay, here you go. Yeah. And was taken in, parachuted down. They were shooting at him as he went down. And he was taken in as a prisoner. And he was then imprisoned for many years in Vietnam under horrible conditions. And his prayer life became quite phenomenal. And there was that hope. And eventually he did manage to get out. And once he got back home, he was presumed dead. They'd celebrated his funeral. His wife had remarried. Oh, that's awkward. Everything 
had changed. So he finally gets out, but he goes home to almost the opposite of what he thought he'd come home to and needing to find his feet again. It's a phenomenal story of faith. Father Charlie, sorry, Major Charlie Plum, I think, but I'm, that's from the deepest recesses of my mind. It's worse, worse than Ulysses. So what happens in that situation, Father Dave? You're remarried, but your spouse isn't actually dead. Yeah. You go and talk to a bishop and say, what do you do? <laughs> Por que lo nostos? Righto. Now, before we, we wrap up, we actually have a question that's come through, and it is specific to Father Dave. It is from one of our listeners, Lauren, who, in listening to the podcast, she has just finished listening to the Spiritual Warfare podcast, mm. and she has asked a question of you specifically, Father Dave, being that she has heard a little bit about what is referred to in Scripture as the fourth watch of the night, and that this is the dangerous time and the look on your face says you're not going to give an answer but this is a particular time when we are prone to attack in spiritual warfare and she wanted to know have you heard anything about the fourth watch of the night that is referred to i would assume she didn't say where but i'd assume in the psalms i think that's where i've read it Hmm. haven't heard the term gotta say there were obviously particular times of the day when the the monks would talk about being dangerous times they often talked about the noonday devil being kind of that that time of the early afternoon when obviously everyone's feeling a little bit lazy and slothful and that's a time when you're probably most prone to sin. I don't know, it might be related to that, but I'm going to plead yeah. ignorance on this one. I'm going to say something, Lauren. It's probably not going to answer your question. But in The Lord of the Rings, <laughs> speaking of books, in The Lord of the Rings, at the Battle you of Monastery... You know what? I'm just glad you didn't say, C.S. Lewis once said... <laughs> This didn't come up in the movies. So if you've just watched the movies, they're pretty good, but the books are better. And at the Battle of Helm's Deep in The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn is on the wall, who's a Christ figure, the return of the king anyway, king who becomes King Aragorn. Aragorn's having this interaction with an orc from the other army outside the walls who basically says, why do you keep looking towards the east? You know, you know we're going to win, but... You know, in a few hours, we're going to overrun this castle and you're all going to die. And Aragorn makes this statement. He says, I'm looking to the east because the sun is always been the hope of man. And then an hour later, the sun comes up. And as the sun comes up, Gandalf comes back with the riders of Ro- Rohan and they and they go and win the battle. But this, this imagery of the sun rising, and I don't think it's any accident that every day the sun rises, and it's been going like that for thousands of years in preparation for Jesus, the real sun rising, and this image that we see every day of Jesus's resurrection. So in terms of the fourth watch of the night, the sun has always been the hope of man, the sun rising. So uh, I've just Googled this, as you do, to try and find out the background. So it's actually coming from the, uh, the Roman divisions of the night watch. So the, the Hebrews had three watches during the night. The Romans had four. And so this was the final watch just before dawn, which is probably the most important because that's when every attack is going to be launched just before dawn. So somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So I, I, I haven't read the whole thing, but I suspect that that's saying that it's in the spiritual realm. There's a similar sort of power in being at prayer during those hours. That spiritually we're, we're fighting in the same way that the, the soldiers would always want to be on guard and, and guarding the, the city during that time. Until the king returns. Look mm. to the east. Mm. Beautiful. That's right. The, king, the king's coming back. Thanks for your question, Lauren. 
Thanks for your answer, Marty and Father Dave. Well done. All right, uh, we've got some books to read. Good enough. That <laughs> sufficed. <laughs> Let's say a prayer, and then we can just like randomly rattle off the titles of books into the into the fading, you know, music. All the ones that didn't make the the, the initial cut can be on the outtakes. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for all those who've gone before us who have passed on their wisdom through the written word. We pray that you would help us to rediscover the beauty of sitting down with a good book and allowing this ancient truth to speak to us. Bless us as we go from here. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. Pray for us. Can I throw in another one quickly that I read last year? Yeah, go for it. Um, it's called <laughs> Under the Shadow of His Wings by Father Garion Goldman. Just when we were talking about books set during the Second World War, classic book about a young Franciscan who basically got conscripted into the German army and somehow ended up getting ordained in a prison camp during that time and just doing some profound ministry through Italy as a medic, doing the last rites for people on both sides of the war. Yeah. Really good read if anyone just wants a, a good yarn. Mm. Seek of the Rosary, St. Louis de Montfort, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. St. Francis of Assisi by G.K. Chesterton. Tortured for Christ, Richard Wormbrand. War, War Against, against the, the Weak. Week. No, that's mine, by Edwin Black. Tattoos on the Heart, Father Boyle. Tattoos? <laughs> heart Tats. Dante's Divine Comedy. The Way of Trust and Love, St. Therese of Lisieux by Jacques Philippe. Interior Castle by St. Therese of Avalon. What, you can't just throw in new stuff. Anything by Paul Thigpen. Marty did mention the cat in the hat comes back in passing. That's really <laughs> and the an Princess analogy. Bride. That's really an analogy of salvation. Walk for One, Paving a Path to Unity by Samuel Clear. Awesome. Boom! <laughs> That's right. Read it once, read it twice, read it three times, then we can discuss. <laughs> <laughs>